Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever it is that uh, you're watching, jumping in with us uh, today. Glad that you're with us. Uh, if I haven't got to meet you before, my name is Aiden, one of the pastors here at the Norton campus of Grace Church, and we're so glad uh, that you're jumping on with us. Uh, you guys can open your Bibles to Romans 12. That's kind of where we've been, and we'll kind of jump in there and kind of move along through the passage today. But uh, one of my goals this summer was I wanted to uh, read through the book, The Lord of the Rings. I, I love Lord of the Rings. I've loved the movie so much. We just recently, my wife and I, um, I kind of had, I was kind of sick and we were home for a couple days and we watched through all the Lord of the Rings movies and I'm just like, man, these are so good. I haven't watched them in a couple years and I felt like, uh, you know, if you guys know Garrett who, you know, plays music here with us, he's, I've never met someone as diehard and he's all into it. I'm like, I feel like to keep up with Garrett, I need to read the books. So I, I listened to the books. I didn't read them. I listened to them. Does that count? Are those the same? Like is reading a little bit above listening? I listened to all the books. They were awesome. I love Lord of the Rings. I was in early middle school when they started coming out on video, on video, VHS. But I, I remember being home, seeing the first one. I'm like, this is life changing. I loved the Lord of the Rings. So much so that me and all my friends, uh, you know, it was kind of fifth, sixth grade, we, we like made ourselves like wooden swords. We'd go out and like hit trees pretending they were orcs. I had a pretty good system on how I could find little arrows for my bow and arrow. Like it was like an intense thing. And towards the end of sixth grade, you know, you start to like get crushes on girls. You start to you try and be cool at school. You try to like start doing your hair and wearing cool clothes and stuff like that. And it was funny because what I would do is I would go home and I would be in the woods with my wooden sword hitting trees and then I'd go to school and I'd like try to be cool, hanging out with the girls, try to, you know, just be something cool. And I was kind of living between these two spaces, right? Of being a kid who wants to play in the woods and then kind of being a, a teenager who wants to impress girls and impress his friends and all those types of things. And what I realized was sometimes those certain years in middle school can almost be these times in between two times. I've been reading this book this week and it kind of kind of inspired some conversation we're going to have today. But it's by a guy named Mark Sayers, and he's kind of talking about this unique moment that we're in as a culture. And he says this. He says, gray zones. He kind of describes these spaces in the middle as gray zones. They exist in the overlap between two eras. They contain the influence of both the passing, kind of the era that's coming past, and the forming era, the era that's coming. He says that makes gray zones confusing and contradictory. Gray zones, he almost talks about, they're like these wildernesses, right? It's like the wilderness. That they can, in one sense, there's this chaotic sense to them as things are unclear, kind of some, a lot of uncertainty in these gray zones. But these, but these gray zones also can be hopeful spaces. They can be full of potential if we look at them in the right light. And so as we jump back into Romans 12 today, we're continuing this conversation all about life together, all about living in community and how do we follow Jesus, not individually, but with one another. And what's important to notice as we look at Romans 12 is that this is not just happening in a vacuum, but Paul's writing to a historic situation. You can go, you can Google, look at the history books about what's going on in Rome at the time between kind of 50, 70 AD, around that time. And as we jump back in, I think what you'll find is that the people that Paul is writing to are in and of themselves in a gray zone, kind of between two eras in a lot of ways. That the, the, there was kind of Jew and Gentile. You might have heard that before. Jews were those that had kind of followed God, adhered to the laws, that they were a cultural people. They were a religious people, very, very, very uh, central to their entire being. 
than Gentiles or anyone who didn't, who weren't Jewish. They're anyone who weren't Jews. So it could have been pagan people in the Roman Empire, all kinds of different individuals. Well, Jesus comes along, the church is forming, and Jesus invites Jew and Gentile into the story of the gospel, into this family of God, right? And so the church in Rome starts the form with primarily a Jewish audience, but then a lot of things go down in the, the Jewish empire, and, or in the Roman empire, and the Jews are kind of expelled from Rome. And so the church continues to grow, but it's primarily growing with Gentile Christians. And then what happens is eventually these Jews start to come back to the church. And so now you have these people that have a deep, deep religious heritage on how you're supposed to relate with God, but now they're new believers to the way of Jesus. And then you also have these Gentiles who might have been doing whatever, worshiping Aphrodite, and now they're part of the church as well. They're part of this family of God. And so what Paul is writing into is into this family. He's writing into this family where when we look at this idea of gray zones, we see the passing era and then the forming era. And what Paul is writing into is before Jesus, there's this Jew and Gentile split. And then what's going to happen as the church gets established, as the church gets developed, even now that there's this established church, Jew, Gentile, people who might have believed in God, people who are new to God, all part of the family. But what Paul is writing into is this gray zone where they're figuring out how to relate to one another, how to do life together, how, how to serve one another, how to both follow God together, because these guys don't have any background with God, and these guys have a deep cultural and religious heritage with God, and there's a lot of animosity, there's a lot of tension on how these two pieces go together. And into this, Paul writes this. This has kind of been the overarching uh, passage we've been looking at. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, Jews, Gentiles, people who come from different backgrounds who maybe don't like each other, in view of God's mercy, under the banner of the cross, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. That's one path. But however, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be renewed in your mind like Christ. Start to see each other differently. Start to see your situation differently. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, imperfect will. We've been kind of saying this, that we don't judge ourselves, we don't judge one another or following Christ by the world standard. That we don't follow the world standard, but we follow Christ's example. We've been saying it this way. I love the way that Dan kind of said this. I'm using my clicker and I'm trying to figure it out. There we go. It said, in view of God's mercy, that we see God's mercy, that we see Christ's body was sacrificed for our sin. This is all in view of God's mercy. He says, so therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. His body was sacrificed so our bodies can become a living sacrifice that makes up the body of Christ. These Jews, these Gentiles, these guys coming together in this uncertain gray zone that's chaotic, confusing, how to relate to each other, but is also full of potential, make up the body of Christ. So today, we are just continuing through the passage that we've been walking through. We've been continuing through in sections. So we have one and two where Paul kind of outlines this. Then he talks about the body of Christ. And then he goes into 13 verses, verses 9 through 21, where he just rapid fires uh, these commands, almost this picture of what a transformed life looks like. Just all these quick hitting uh, kind of encouragements, commands, reminders that Paul gives us. It's actually 30 commands in 13 verses. It's pretty dense. And what this is actually called, this is called uh, this is a literary tool, tool that Paul is using called Paranesis. And it's kind of this quick, rapid-fire instruction or counsel or advice that he's just giving this to, to the, the Jews and Gentiles that are coming together under Christ. I think about this. It's almost whenever we're trying to leave the house, back about three years ago, whenever Sarah and I were going to go somewhere, I had one person to worry about 
getting ready on time. And you just got ready, put your shoes on, curled your hair, went out the door. Now, if you're a parent, you know, or if you watch parents, you know, you got, you got to wrangle all the troops. You know, you got to get them all together. So every time we're getting ready to go somewhere, Camden's my oldest, we got to buckle Colby in, and then it's Camden. You got to get your shoes. got to put your socks on. Are you wearing underwear? Stop accessing me. Alexa, stop playing. Camden, stop hitting your brother. Do you have a car for the trip? Where's your water bottle? Did you drink your Miralax? Where's your snacks? Like you're just going through all these quick things. That's almost what Paul is doing. It's his rapid fire reminders. And where we're at today, we're gonna to be in verses just 12 and 13. Just 12 and 13. And in verse 12, he says this. These are the kind of the quick hitting instructions he gives. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's verse 12, the first one we're looking at. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And what I think is important to notice for the sake of today is that Paul is not so much, he's not just coming up with some things that they should do. He's not just like, here's some commands. Here's some stuff that you should get your act together with. But more so, he's reminding them, bringing back to the front of their mind as they're being uh, transformed by Christ, fruit that Christ wants to bear through their lives together. He's not so much coming up with new things as he's reminding them that these would have been things that Jesus taught. These would have been things that Paul would have written in other letters, things that other New Testament authors would have written in their letters. And it's kind of this collective picture of what a transformed life looks like. And Paul is reminding them quickly. Look, he says this in Galatians 5. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's three of the nine right here. That's, that's three things that he's reminding them of right here. Gentleness and self-control. And as it, Paul mentions in verse 1 of Romans 12, there's two ways that we can be formed and shaped by the patterns of this world, where we let our community look like the community of the world, where we're skeptical of one another, where we compare one another, where we judge one another, we try to get ahead of one another, or we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, where he's calling us to be, for today, joyful in hope patient affliction together, faithful in prayer together. We read this through an individualist lens. He's writing to the community. I think this is important to think about. That whatever path we take, we are going to bear fruit in our lives. And what Paul's reminding us of is he wants to not just give us simple commands, but he wants, wants Christ to remind us of the fruit that Christ wants to bear in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just look at each one of these quickly today. Look at the fruit that, that Paul's reminding us that Christ wants to produce in our lives and contrast it with the fruit that will end up being produced in our lives, that we see maybe in our lives, that we see in our community, that's not a product of being transformed, but a product of being conformed. The first one is this, that he calls us to be joyful in hope. Joyful in hope versus being anxious in uncertainty. He wants us to be joyful in hope versus being anxious in uncertainty. We ourselves are living in a gray zone. We are living in a gray zone kind of between two different worlds. And this is kind of the, the thrust of the, the book by Mark Sayers is about, but I think it just gives an interesting perspective for the sake of today. That you and I are living in a gray zone. We are living in a historic communication shift. When the printing press came out, it changed the world. You can now communicate in a whole new way. The Bible was printed in different languages. Like it changed the way we communicated and understood things. Because now understanding could come to the people, right? In the same sense, we know this email, internet, it changes communication. And communication isn't just a way that we talk to one another, but it, it changes us. 
that all, all the technology changes the way that we live. Like the car changed the way that we interacted with one another. It changes what we could do. It changes the size of the world, you know? That we live in a globally connected world now. We live in a globally connected world that we can talk to people in China. We can have, I have a conversation with my friend in Colorado on FaceTime. Like it changes us and we are living in this gray zone. We're living between two eras because this changes not just us, but it changes our whole world. That we, Sarah says that the, the kind of the two eras is the, the passing era and the forming era. That almost the last, I don't know, 100 years has been this American century where politics and economics and, and culture was shaped and led by America. And now we're kind of living in this connected world where a lot of that is changing. Something can happen in China and change the entire world. That we're living in this gray zone, right? We're living kind of between two things. And what you see, we see this play out in all kinds of ways. We see this play out politically, right? That there's, for this passing era, there's almost this conservative nature to hold on to certain things, right? And some of those things are good. And there's also this, for the, the kind of networked world that's kind of coming, that's changing us, there's this desire to kind of progress into that. Some of those things aren't necessarily bad. There's this interesting moment that we're in. And what Sayers says in his book that we're living through is what we see is this crumbling of institutions. In this moment that we're in, we see this as we transform from the passing era to the forming era, we see a lot of crumbling institutions. We see this with over the last couple elections. There's these questions about government, these questions about the way that the law of the land plays out and there's holes in it. There's questions about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to interpret it. And we see kind of some of these institutions crumbling. We see this in the church. That before there's kind of this, here's the cardinal, here's the pope, here's the pastor, here's the whatever. And that's the spiritual authority where now we can Google it, we can question everything, we have bad experiences, we see church leaders fail, we see churches fail, we see... Sorry, could you say that again? We see Sierra yelling at us in the middle of our sermon, we see denominations splitting, that we see the church as an institution failing, we see this in education, right? That there's a lot of debate about what we're teaching and what we should be teaching and how we should be doing that. We, we used to get newspapers, read the newspaper, that's what happened. Now we don't really know if we can trust the media that we're hearing, that institutions are kind of crumbling. And what happens is that these things that we trust and they give us a sense of security. The government will take care of it. The pastor knows. The, the media is telling me what, what's going on. Like we, we trust these institutions that what happens when some of these things crumble for better or for worse, it creates questions in us for better or for worse. And what Sayers says in his book is that what happens is when these kind of institutions crumble, we corporately take on that anxiety ourselves. And now the individuals, you and I, bear the weight of the anxiety that was once cast upon the institutions, for better or for worse. For example, you think about, I just flew a couple weeks ago to go see my friend, and you fly, and you get on the airplane, and I don't fly a ton. Some people are terrified of flying, regardless. But I'm fine with it. I guess it's, you know, the first time when it was in a while, every little bump, you're like, this is it. I'm going down. And you fly, and I assume that, I don't know, Frontier Airlines vetted their pilots, and their pilots went to school, and the pilots got experience, and I get on my plane, and I'm trusting that the situation's going to work itself out, right? And if you hit some turbulence, the pilot gets on, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we're experiencing a little bit of turbulence. Please keep your seatbelts buckled. We'll be through it in about 10 to 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, sure. But if that pilot gets on there, and he's like, listen, guys, this is my first weekend doing this, and I'm a little terrified of this of this turbulence as well. Now, all of a sudden, that the, the trust in the institution of the airplane, the pilot, now that anxiety gets dispersed to everybody on the flight. 
And now we're all super anxious about what's happening, about what's going to happen. We're all bearing that, that we are either called to be joyful in hope, but what we see in our gray zone moment is that we are anxious in uncertainty. That we've conformed to the patterns of the world and we are anxious in the uncertainty of the moment. We are all living in a gray zone moment and it's causing this kind of corporate anxiety. Not necessarily what anxiety that we deal with medically, which is very real, obviously, but in this corporate sense that what we used to entrust to certain institutions and groups is now carried upon the individual. And what this moment is revealing, I just had a conversation with a friend this week about it. It's revealing that our hope, we may have said, oh, our hope is in Jesus, we love Jesus, because everything was a comfort zone, it was fine. But as stuff starts to crumble and change, we had a conversation a couple months ago, we want to get back to normal. We, we cling on to politics, we cling on to comfort, we cling on to certain things because it gives us a sense of comfort. What, almost this idea of these strongholds, that those are the things that we put our trust and faith in. And it's revealing about where our hope, where our faith actually was. Paul is writing to the church in this gray zone moment and he's calling them not to find their joy in how they relate to one another, not to find their joy in how much they like each other, how comfortable things are, but he says to find your joy in hope. To be joyful as a community in the hope that you all have, that that's what you guys share together. This is reflected all, again, he's not just coming up with a new instruction, but he's reflecting something that's taught throughout the scriptures. Look at Peter writes in 1 Peter verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy, that's the overarching theme, in his great mercy, gave us new birth into a living hope. Didn't give us new birth into good advice, give us, give us new birth into you know, some good teachings, but into a living hope through the front door of this whole thing is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into what we are saved. The front door is the resurrection. That's what our hope is rooted in, but we enter through the front door into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, fade, crumble. This inheritance is kept in heaven with Christ for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. Our hope is rooted in the resurrection. It's rooted in the resurrection, and we anticipate Christ's return. That kind of the gray zone moment that we're in, it kind of forces us out of our comfort zone. It forces us to reckon with the things that we actually are putting our faith in, the things that make us feel secure, things that make us feel at ease, the things that make us feel safe. It reveals those things. And it requires us to ask ourselves, what are we putting our hope in? Putting our hope in the fact that we have an inheritance that won't change and that God's power is going to protect us in Christ, that when Christ returns, he will make all things new. That Jesus will cast evil out of his good new world. That he will rule and reign new Jerusalem with his people. And what we are called to do as we come together as a community, for, for those in Romans 12, Jew, Gentile, for us, Republican, Democrat, old, young, blue collar, white collar, whatever it is, that we're called to come together and bring the kingdom that is going to come, that Jesus began, that Jesus started, Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, the way of living in God's good world, and being transformed by the renewing of Christ, that we are called together to begin that now as we cling to the hope of what is to come. 
And we have joy in the fact that our hope that Jesus is going to make all things new, that our new birth and the resurrection doesn't perish. It's not, it's not optional. It's not, we'll see how this, thing's, this thing goes. It won't spoil. It doesn't fade. How much in our world fades? Fads fade. Your blue jeans fade. Our faces fade. Our memories fade. But our hope in our joy, which is in Christ, is not rooted in our circumstances, but it does not fade. What does it look like for us as a community to exchange our anxiety for hope? To exchange our anxiety for joy? Perhaps it looks like confidently singing together and worshiping together. Perhaps it looks like doing good together. Our church is going to get together this weekend. If you're watching this, it may be either happening right now or it just happened yesterday. For Feed My Starving Children, we got together and did good together, encouraging one another. I encourage you, if you're in a, in a group, to talk that out. What does it look like as a community for us to exchange the anxiety that we all experience in this gray zone moment? To exchange that for joy together. What does that look like to live from joy that's rooted in our hope? Look at what Peter continues to say. Peter continues to say, In all of this, we greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Which leads us to the second thing that Paul says in Romans 12. To be joyful in hope, to be patient in affliction. Versus being cynical in circumstances. Being patient in affliction versus cynical in circumstances. I think we did a little group poll. If anybody's had any affliction in the last couple years, I think we'd all raise our hands. Whether it's been medical affliction because of the pandemic, relational affliction, financial affliction, anxiety within us, internal affliction, that there's all kinds of trials, what Peter says. Paul calls us to be patient in affliction. And sometimes we talk about patience as it's just like a virtue, it's just like a nice thing we should do so that we're more pleasant to be around. But why does he call us to be patient in the midst of our affliction? I think Paul knows that, that one, trials, affliction, hard times are inevitable. Inevitable. Like we don't get through this without those things. But I think he also knows that oftentimes these things don't go by quick. And that for many of us, for most of us, the longer that affliction and trials go on, the more cynical and frustrated we can get. You guys remember a couple years ago, flatten the curve in three weeks? Everybody's like, let's do this together, us versus the pandemic. And by week four, when that curve wasn't flattened, we're all like, all right, who got to blame for this, right? And we all started to get a little cynical, a little upset. You think about this, you go to the grocery store, and if you see a long line, you're like, oh, that's fine. I'll wait, I got my stuff. But if you aren't inching forward in that line at the pace that you want to be inching forward, you don't just start to get frustrated and cynical at the situation. We start to get cynical about, man, who in front of us is buying too much cat food? Weirdo, ah, come on. Or we start to get frustrated with the checkout kid. Oh, come on, did you go to high school? Do you know what you're doing over there? And we start to get cynical towards not just the situation, but towards people. And the longer we go through affliction, we start to look for a way out. We start looking for other strongholds to put our faith in and put our hope in. We start to find for someone to ease our suffering. We start for looking for other things to be our saviors, whether it be circumstances or people or politics or entertainment, that we start to become cynical. We don't resent the situation. We resent 
the people we are around. And Paul calls us to be patient in affliction. He's not talking to just one person. You as a community, Jew, Gentile, coming together, living in this gray zone, be patient together in this affliction. As we wait on God, we be patient with one another. I read this quote this week, and I thought this was powerful. It's by a pastor named John Orberg. He says, scratch the surface of a cynic, and you'll find a wounded idealist underneath. Say that again for those of you in the back. Scratch the surface of a cynic, and you'll find a wounded idealist underneath. That some of us are cynical because we had a way that we saw our lives, maybe our country, maybe our community, our retirement, our relationships. We, we had a way we saw this whole thing playing out. But we've been waiting in that grocery line for way too long now. And we had this ideal picture in our head, and if we're honest, this has taken a lot longer than we thought it was going to take to not plan out the way we thought it was going to play out. And our idealism is turned into cynicism. And now we don't, we don't trust that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. We don't trust that people are, are worth our time and energy. And we just become cynical and we want to do things ourselves. But, but Paul calls us to be patient. Look at James 5. This is the, the end of the book of James. It says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. It says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Stand firm, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Patient matters. Patient and affliction. Patience matters because there is work to be done in the gray zone. That perhaps this gray zone in between eras, in between moments that we find ourselves living in that's uncertain, that's unclear, that could be chaotic, that could be anxiety-inducing, that there's so much potential for the kingdom of God. Because all of our strongholds, all the things that we put our trust in, they are shaken and it's such fertile soil for the kingdom of God, for the seed to land in people's hearts. That that the, the, what James is saying is this picture of the farmer is don't waste the waiting. That the farmer, he's got crops to plant. He's got crops to sow. He's got a purpose for what he's doing here. That our faith, our inner life with Jesus, it doesn't grow in that comfort zone. It gets stagnant in that comfort zone. But it grows in the wilderness and in the rich soil of this gray zone that we find ourselves living in. In his book, Sarah says, Without God, wilderness can be a terrible place. But with God... They become tools in our Savior's hands, schools for spiritual growth, not just as individuals, but together as a community. That this gray zone, for some of us in the last couple of years, people have left, people have checked out, people have, have gone different places. But for those of us, and that's not just our church, that's, that's faith in general. We've seen that. But for those that hold fast, that stand firm, that are patient, that wait in line, that wait upon the Lord, knowing that he's near, that I believe that Christ is going to draw us together in a unique sense that wasn't going to happen in the comfort zone, that happens in this tenacious moment. We hold to one. We saw that with the early church, that these Jews, Gentiles came together, didn't know how to relate together, didn't know how to commune together. We're going to talk about more of this in the coming weeks. But as they walked through affliction together, it formed the church in unique ways that you and I are impacted by today. And the last thing, not the last thing, but the last thing in verse 12 that Paul calls us to do is 
to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer versus clinging to control. Perhaps one of the hardest things these last couple years has been for us to realize that we have far less control than we realized. We could control our TV, Facebook feeds, curate everything we want and get our groceries delivered. And yet one germ somewhere in China changes the entire world and flips us upside down that we thought we conquered nature, but we are far more out of control than we realized that we are. Paul calls us to be faithful as a community, faithful in prayer. And I think prayer does two things. We just had a whole 40 days where we talked about prayer. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But true prayer, not just, dear Lord, thanks for this food. Dear Lord, help me get through this, this hard day. Dear Lord, make my day easy. But true prayer, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being patient, being in the silence with Jesus, that true prayer humbles us. It humbles us. That when we pray, when we pray, we're surrendering to Jesus' way. That we're acknowledging that he is God and that we are not. We are acknowledging our own sin that contributes to the affliction in our lives and the lives of those around us. That I'm acknowledging my need for Jesus. That all the things I put my trust in are crumbling. That I'm acknowledging my need for Christ. That it's humbling. I'm coming humbly to God in prayer. And that's going to change the way that I see myself. That prayer humbles us, but prayer also unifies us. When we do that collectively, when we collectively come to God in humility, when we coll collectively come and admit our need, collectively come and admit our sin, collectively surrender to God, there's a unifying nature to that. Francis Chan says, Many of our problems could be reconciled if we discussed our concerns on our knees before a holy God. That we as a community, we come together and we, we control our narratives and our perspectives and how we think things should be. And we come together and we see so much of this. We have a hard time reconciling one another. Yet what Chan is saying is that we sit at our knees before a holy God who is greater than we understand, who is more holy than, than we could ever dream of becoming. That we see our own sin, his holiness, and that we, by his grace, are part of this family. And we are humbled by that. And we are on our knees and we look over at one another. It changes the way we see one another. That prayer keeps us collectively centered on the purpose for why we are here. Prayer helps us to lift our eyes from ourselves and pray for one another. That what does it look like to release control and to be faithful in prayer as we pray for one another? As we are faithful, we are prayer warriors for one another and for our pursuit of following Jesus together. That we pray for one another in the midst of anxiety. That we pray for one another who's struggling to be cynical or struggling to be, to be faithful in our cynicism. To be faithful in prayer. Often we want control to make the world go the way that we think it should. But I heard this this week, that we, we want to control the world, we want everything to play out the way that we think it should be played out, and we want to vote the right way, or volunteer the right way, or, or connect with the right people. We want certain things to go the right way, and those things aren't necessarily bad. But I heard a quote this week that I think goes to follow the heart of it. It says, we are not called to save the world. That's what Jesus is going to do. We're not called to save the world, but to love our neighbors. Sometimes our our scope, because we're so connected, because we feel like we log on to the internet and we see the entire world, that we feel like we have to change the whole world in everybody's mind. You know what I realized getting a little bit older, having kids, being a pastor, is I have no control over anybody. 
uh, we don't have control over people, but we're not called to control people and save the world. That's the work that Jesus is going to do and our part to play as ambassadors of the kingdom is to love our neighbors. John Tyson, I love this quote, he says this, he asked this question, in my acting where I have agency, where I have the ability to change things, he says, I know everything about things I can do nothing about. We spend all our time obsessing about things that we have almost no control over. And, and we do almost nothing about the things that we can do everything about. I can't change the world, but I can love my neighbor. That was Romans 12. Romans 13 says this. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. You're just rapid-firing these things. I think we'll say it this way for the sake of today. It's calling us to be proactive in generosity versus possessively protective. As the things crumble, as we're in this gray zone, we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect ourselves, but Paul's calling the church as a community to be proactive in their generosity. Both inside the family, he says, share with the Lord's people, those who are in need. That there's this idea that we have a responsibility, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, to care for one another within the family of God because we belong to one another. Look out for the needs of those in our family. He's instructing this to a church who may be Jew, who may be Gentile. And it, these, for the sake of today, these very well, I think when he's writing, he's writing about physical needs. Are people taking care of? Do they have food to eat? Do they have clothes? Is the body taken care of? If you're part of the family, are your brothers and sisters doing all right? But maybe it's, as we share with the Lord's people, maybe it's sharing our experiences together. Maybe it's sharing our wisdom with those that need wisdom in the family. Maybe it's sharing our time with those that need some investment. Maybe it's sharing our energy with those who are weak. Are we sharing with one another those in the family of God? But it doesn't just say inside the family. It says outside the family. He says this, this practice, hospitality. We've talked about this before. I honestly think that hospitality is the ace up our sleeves for followers of Jesus as we bring the kingdom. That hospitality is inviting people to the table. Not inviting them to, to hear my opinion, not inviting them into some booby trap conversation that we're going to get them to believe what we want them to believe, but hospitality is inviting them to the table. That literally the word hospitality in the Greek means philozenia. It means love of stranger. That this is the way that Jesus was, that he loved his own. We see him loving his disciples and collectively them loving strangers, loving those who are outside of their circle, inviting them to the table. This, this, the NIV says practice hospitality. The, the message says be inventive hospitality. ESV says seek to show hospitality. The CSB says pursue hospitality. There's the sense to which what Paul is saying is not, you know, see if anybody walks by and if they need a cup of water, give them a cup of water. But he's saying, go after this. Go pers actively pursue, seek out proactively loving the stranger. Demonstrating this community for the sake of those who are outside of it. I was reading this story this week by a, an author named Sarah Condon, and she told this story about how she wanted to do this, she wanted to do this, uh, this study on hospitality. She's from the South and she kind of had this sense of we need to be real hospitable and 
you know, probably tinged with some better homes and gardens. And so she kind of sent this study to some different friends about hospitality and how they're going to become hospitable together. And, and one day she had a six month old and her husband was out of town fishing and, and she locked herself out of her house. Her phone was inside, husband's gone. She locked herself out of the house with her six month old, which sounds like a nightmare. And what she told in this story is that she called, or she didn't call a friend, her phone was inside. She walked up the street to a, a friend's house, who was a close friend, and this friend took them in, went and bought baby formula, gave the baby a bath, didn't, wasn't expecting them, didn't have a five-course Thanksgiving meal in a spot to sleep, but she gave them cheese and crackers as all she had in her fridge at the time. In, her, in, in the author of this article, Sarah, as she was going to use her friend's phone to text her husband, she opened her friend's phone and on there she saw this hospitality study that she had first sent her friend. And what she realized in the course of this day that in her pursuit of being hospitable, which was well-intentioned, she realized that where she needed to begin was that she was the one who needed hospitality shown to her. That hospitality comes from, the, the starting point comes from realizing that we ourselves are the ones in need of God's grace. That we are the least of these in need of God's grace. That Paul, Paul is not just throwing a list of things to do at his church, but he's reminding us of the fruit that Christ wants to bear in our lives. And he's calling us in the midst of this to look to what Christ has first done for us. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy, for the joy set before him, Christ endured. He patiently in affliction, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that he was faithful to what God had called him to, that Christ demonstrated joy, patience, faithfulness. Look what verse 13 says. Or verse 3. Consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, from you and I, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Something hit me this week just with that, that, that consider him. And oftentimes we, we, we try to, we might leave and we're like, all right, I got to do these things. I got to be more joyful. You know, we try, got to be more patient. Got to be more hospitable. Or sometimes we come to a certain cultural issue and we find our verses to apply to it. We open the Bible. The Bible says it, see? And yet we look to the God. The joy set for me during the cross, sat down right hand of God. That's the gospel. That Jesus died in our place to bring us into the family of God. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is consider him. Do we consider Christ? When we feel like all the things we put our faith in are crumbling, when we feel like we've been waiting in that grocery line forever and we're growing cynical, when we feel like we want to be protected because we're not sure we can trust either the people in our own family and our body of Christ, those people out there, we want to be possessive and protective. When all these different things that we experience, we experience the wave of anxiety because we feel like we're carrying the weight of the world in our own hearts. What does it look like not just to... to to believe in some abstract Christian way of doing things. Not to, oh, I'm not supposed to conform to the patterns of the world, so I guess I'll do the Christian thing. Not some flat version of that, but what does it mean to consider Christ? To be transformed by the renewing of who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he's called us into and how he wants us to abide in him that we might bear fruit. Have we been so committed to a, 
a certain Christian way of living that we haven't considered Jesus? Have we been so committed to being right that we haven't considered and been captivated with who Jesus is and what he's taught? As we continue to navigate this gray zone, which may go on for who knows how long we'll be in this gray zone, but there's rich soil for the kingdom to take heart. And it will only happen as we as a community, as those that are coming from all kinds of different places, just as they were Jew and Gentile, that as we come together, what does it look like for us to consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who went before us and endured the cross for us? What does it look like to consider Jesus and all these things? So Christ, as we navigate this gray zone, I pray that you would help us to be joyful, and hope to be patient in our affliction and trial. To be faithful to submitting not just our needs and cares, but also the needs and cares of our community to you. And that Jesus, you would transform us in the people who love one another and love the stranger. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't do these things because we're supposed to, but that we would consider you that our hearts and minds, that what would come to our hearts and minds is a God who died for us. A God who we were his joy. That we would consider that you have accomplished the task of Jesus. That you have made us right with you. That we would consider you as we interact with one another. As we pursue life together. Jesus, help us in these things. Amen.